MSW Media. Thanks to Thuma for supporting the Daily Beans. Create that feeling of checking into your favorite hotel at home with The Bed by Thuma. Go to thuma.co slash beans and use code beans to receive a $25 credit towards your purchase of The Bed plus free shipping in the continental U.S. And today's show is also brought to you by my favorite daily nutritional drink, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. We thank them for their support. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, April 6, 2022. Today, Ivanka testified before the committee for several hours. The U.S. announces new sanctions packages against Russia. All 101 of John Eastman's emails have been turned over to the select committee. The documentarian who filmed Enrique Tarrio and the parking garage meeting testified today. The Biden administration will extend the pause on student loan payments through the end of August. And Ron DeSantis appears to be blocking documents related to the Matt Gates investigation. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hey, Dana. Hello. Happy Wednesday. Hello to you as well. That last story, I can't wait to get to it. When I saw the news, I was like, oh, DeSantis is in trouble. I'm blowing it up. Now, he's not refusing to give documents to investigators. He's refusing to give them to the public under the public records law in the Sunshine Manual in Florida. It's called the Sunshine Manual. Of course it is. It sounds so fun. And so that's cool. And we really don't have a deep dive into this, but there was a filing made in court that the select committee now has all 101 of Eastman's emails. Those are the 101 of the 111 that the judge reviewed and decided that 96 of them didn't you know, make it through the work product privilege. And then five of them were because they were given to other people or weren't written by lawyers. And then the last one was because it was a crime fraud exception. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like there might be some stuff in there they were trying to hide that they're not going to be able to hide. Yeah, we're going to see them soon, I imagine. That should be fun, especially the crimey one. That one that that, um, fell under the crime fraud exception was a a forwarded string of emails, included a memo written to Rudy that was a day-by-day operation of the coup. Well, delightful. Yeah, fun. And then later in the show, I get to talk to you for the first time on The Beans. It's Shanlin Wu. He's a former AUSA, assistant U.S. attorney for D.C., former federal prosecutor, and he's rad. And I'm I'm looking forward to talking all things DOJ and select committee with him because he knows what he's talking about. So woohoo. That sounds awesome. Yeah, he's he's a really cool guy. I can't wait to have him on the show again. I, I enjoyed our, our discussion and I can't wait for y'all to hear it. But before we do that, we have to get to the regular news. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. I know regular. The word regular was doing a lot of heavy lifting when I said regular news. <laughs> yeah, none of this is normal. None of it's regular. <laughs> yeah, no, it's totally normal that the daughter of a former president was testifying before a congressional committee for hours today. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And that that is the top story. Ivanka, former President Donald Trump's daughter, and one of those closest to him during the insurrection at the Capitol is testifying before the House panel investigating the January 6th attack. Mississippi Rep. Benny Thompson, the chair of the committee, said Tuesday afternoon she's been answering investigators' questions on a video teleconference since this morning. She wasn't chatty, but she's been helpful. She came in on her own and did not have to be subpoenaed, he said, and also she has not invoked any privilege that he's aware of. Doesn't mean she hasn't pled the fifth, but I got to tell you, just her being there is a big deal. I'll get to that in a second. But Ivanka, who was with her father in the White House that day, is one of more than 800 witnesses the committee's interviewed as it works to compile a record of the attack. And uh, she's the first of Trump's crotch fruit uh, to speak to the committee and one of the closest people to her father. Whether she gives the committee new information or not, her decision to cooperate is significant for the panel, which has been trying to secure an interview with her since late January. The nine-member panel is particularly focused on what the former president was doing as his supporters broke into the Capitol and interrupted the certification of Joe Biden's victory. Ivanka's testimony comes less than a week after her husband, Jared, they went to Jared, testified to the committee in a separate virtual meeting that lasted more than six hours. Members of the panel said his testimony was helpful and were hoping to further fill in the gaps with her help. 
panel is using the interviews to compile a comprehensive record and will begin to release the information in the coming months as it holds public hearings and releases a series of reports on the insurrection. While Congress doesn't have the power to charge anyone with a crime, members of the panel say the objective is to create the most comprehensive record possible so nothing like it ever happens again. And also part of their job is to make legislative recommendations so that we can have laws that make this kind of stuff hard in the future. So lawmakers have said they want to discuss what Ivanka Trump knew about her father's efforts, including telephone call. They say she witnessed to pressure then Vice President Mike Pence to reject Biden's 2020 election win. And that is the call that was right before he went dark for seven and a half hours and spent 20 minutes on the phone or so with Vice President, former Vice President Mike Pence. And Kellogg witnessed it on the other end, on Pence's end, and testified before the committee. But we don't have any testimony from Trump's end, basically. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> the committee is also interested in any concerns she may have heard from Pence's staff, members of Congress and the White House Counsel's Office about Trump's pressure on Pence. And I want to note here, because some social media influencers are pitching a fit that she's not under oath today. It's still illegal to lie to Congress, whether you're under oath or not. And again, the point here isn't necessarily to get a detailed testimony from her. They know all the answers to the questions they're asking her. It's to scare the shit out of other witnesses by showing that her and Jared are answering questions for hours and hours. So we'll see how useful her testimony is in the coming months. But take the W. Fuck. We have to take them where they are. All right, AG. The U.S. will announce new sanctions on Russia Wednesday in coordination with Group of Seven Nations and European Union. And that's according to administration official. The official said the sweeping package, quote, will impose significant costs on Russia and send it further down the road of economic, financial and technological isolation. The new sanctions package will ban all new investment in Russia. It's going to increase sanctions on financial institutions and state-owned enterprises in Russia and sanction Russian government officials and their family members. The new sanctions package will mark the latest escalation in efforts by the U.S. and its allies to impose costs on Russia for its invasion and, over time, cut off critical economic sectors the country utilizes to wage this ongoing war. Now, they also follow new revelations of further atrocities committed by Russian forces in northern Ukraine, with images of the atrocities committed in Bucha serving as an accelerator to ongoing discussions between the U.S. and its European allies to ramp up economic costs. And those images are horrifying. Mm. Absolutely horrifying. The expected sanctions come after the U.S. Treasury announced it will no longer allow Russia to pay down its debt using dollars stockpiled at American banks. Now, while Washington had imposed sanctions on the Russian central bank freezing their foreign currency at U.S. banks, the Treasury Department had previously allowed Russia to use those reserves to pay its debt. Now, it's a move that officials say will substantially raise the risk of default and undercut urgent efforts by the central bank to staunch the economic bleeding that immediately arrested the Russian economy in the wake of the Western response to the invasion. So we're going to see if we can hit him again where it counts. Um, I know this mm. is frustrating to a lot of people that this is the, the route we're taking, but we truly are trying to cripple the country uh, into the point where they, they have to retreat. Yeah, or where the, the, the Russians citizens themselves uprise. Or the oligarchs. Correct. Yeah, yep. many of them are already pretty pissed. How, yeah. how do I live without a driver? Yeah, no shit. Mm. Yeah, Crimea uh, River. Crimea. <laughs> okay. uh, all right, she'll be here all week, folks. Try the veal. Oh, don't. That was Actually, awful. save yeah. the veal. <laughs> save the veal. Try the eggs. <laughs> Try the, or even, I don't know, the tofu's delicious this time of year. Mm. Okay, here's your DeSantis story. Yes, Anna. give it to me. Could be in hot water. He's now connected to the Matt Gates federal criminal investigation. This is from Mike DeForest at News 6 in Orlando. This is a really intrepid local journalist, and I, I suggest you follow him. In a move criticized by advocates of Florida's open government laws, Ron DeSantis's staff intervened in a public records request related to a former appointee who is reportedly connected to a federal, not reportedly, he is connected to a federal sex trafficking investigation. And that's according to documents obtained by DeForest at New Six. The governor's secondary review of state spending records delayed the release of those documents for more than two months. That delay may have violated Florida's public record laws, according to some legal experts. News 6 submitted a public records request last year seeking spending reports from Halsey Bashirs. That's the former head of Florida's business licensing agency. And, and by the way, Halsey Bashirs, Florida's business licensing agency. He is the guy who went to the Bahamas with Dr. Pirazzolo 
an underage girl and Matt Gates, and they were lobbying Matt Gates to put forth pot legalization stuff in Congress. And then we got this separate story a few weeks ago of Moraviev, who's a, a Russian who was who was indicted for funneling a million dollars through Parnas and Fruman into Florida politics to obtain business licenses for cannabis. I don't know. Seems fishy. I'm sure all it's of just these a assholes are corrupt as fuck and they all seem to be related. <laughs> yeah. And now DeSantis is withholding these documents from the public. According to Politico, Bashir's and Florida Congressman Gates were named in a grand jury subpoena related to an ongoing federal sex trafficking investigation. As you know, as I said, Bashir's and Gates, who once served together in Florida legislature, have not been charged with any crimes. But Florida's Department of Business and Professional Regulation, or DBPR, compiled Bashir's financial records within days of News 6 requesting them. Some records were even retrieved within hours. And instead of immediately releasing the records, DBPR shared Bashir's financial reports with DeSantis's office for a secondary, quote unquote, review. That's according to documents obtained by News 6, delaying their release by more than two months. Quote, once an agency's records custodian has a record, that custodian must produce the record right then. It doesn't matter that the governor has an interest in it and wants to review it later. That's Pamela Marsh, executive director of the First Amendment Foundation, a nonprofit organization aiming to protect the public's constitutional right to open government. Quote, we understand that this is happening more frequently, but not consistently, such that it appears to have an objective of hiding certain information <laughs> in potentially discriminatory content-based way. <laughs> DeSantis's office claims the governor has the authority to review public records compiled by subordinate state agencies if the governor may have an equity in the record because the record includes communications with the executive office of the governor, because the record concerns the governor or because there's a reason to believe that the governor may be asked about information in the record. In accordance with the governor's duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, the executive office of the governor may review the record for two months to ensure that the accuracy and correctness of the record is right. Okay. That's uh, Brian Griffin, DeSantis's deputy press secretary. But DeSantis, his stated reasons for intervening in the matter are not included among the very limited circumstances that a state agency can delay the release of public records. That's according to information published by the Florida Attorney General. According to page 168 of the Sunshine Manual, la -di -da, the only delay permitted in producing public records under Florida law is the limited and reasonable time allowed the custodian to retrieve the record and delete those portions of the record the custodian asserts are exempt. So however long it takes him to walk over to the fucking file cabinet and grab it <laughs> and sit back down and delete private information, that's the only delay permitted. The Attorney General's manual cites Tribune versus Canella, Tribune Colorado v. Canella, and a 1984 Florida Supreme Court decision that found no provision is made for anyone other than the custodian of the records to withhold a record. And the only justification for withholding a record or a portion thereof is custodian's assertion of statutory exemption. Florida statute defines a record custodian as the elected or appointed state, county, or municipal officer charged with the responsibility of maintaining the office having public records or his or her designee, like if he's on vacation. Tits McGee is on vacation. Today, the files will be handled by Ron Burgundy. Although Florida's Public Record Act does not require government agencies to comply with public records requests within a specific time limit, the Sunshine Manual states that an agency's unjustified delay in producing public records constitutes an unlawful refusal to provide access to public records. Government officials who knowingly violate this record law can be removed from office and charged with first-degree misdemeanors, punishable up to a year in jail and a $1,000 fine. Unknowingly violating the law is a non-criminal infraction punishable by a $500 fine. DeSantis's office did not respond to questions inquiring why it thinks the practice of reviewing some documents before release complies with the records law, which was, by the way, first passed in 1909. DeSantis appointed Bashirs as DBPR secretary in January 2019, calling him a champion for deregulation. <laughs> Bashirs unexpectedly resigned from his position in January of 2021, <laughs> citing health issues. Yeah, I have a severe case of possible indictments. Months after his resignation, published reports linked Bashir's to a federal investigation. According to Politico, he traveled to the Bahamas with Gates in September 2018, just months before Bashir's was named DBPR secretary. At the time, Bashir's was serving in the Florida legislature. That Bahamas trip has been scrutinized by federal investigators as part of its probe into possible sex trafficking. They didn't mention the marijuana thing, but that's a big thing, especially since one of the two 
U.S. prosecutors on loan from Washington, D.C. One of them is a public corruptions expert. <laughs> Jeez. I would love to think that the reason he hasn't released them is because his name is in it. But that's, you know, that's just my dream. That's yeah. my dream. He might just be protecting trouble. Bashirs. And, and it wouldn't be considered obstruction of justice because these aren't documents being withheld from investigators. Right. It's just from the public records law that, uh, you know. I just want that. the asshole out of office. So I'm just hoping that <laughs> something's somewhere. Come on, Val Demings. All right. Is it Val that's running against him? I think she's running against Oh, no. Him. Yeah. Or Rubio. I don't know. I can't keep oh, track Rubio. of these She's running against anymore. Rubio. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's just move on to a good news story before I lose my shit. Okay. The Biden administration is planning to extend a pause on federal student loan repayments through Woo. August 31st. Now, that's according to administration official familiar with the matter. The repayment freeze, which has been in place since the beginning of the pandemic, was scheduled to expire on May 1st. Now, the administration's expected to announce the extension on Wednesday. That's uh, what the official told us and everyone else. <laughs> borrower, balances, <laughs> borrower balances have effectively been frozen for more than two years with no payments required on most federal student loans since March of 2020. Now, during this time, interest has stopped adding up and collections on defaulted debt have been on hold. Now, both President Joe Biden and the former guy, he also had taken steps to extend the pause. Biden had previously moved the payment restart date on three different occasions. Now, when Biden administration extended the pause from September 2021 to the end of January 2022, it warned that it would be the final extension. But the president pushed back the date again as COVID-19 cases were on the rise during the winter. Now, the Department of Education has said that borrowers can expect to receive a billing statement or other notice at least 21 days before their payment is due. Those who had set up auto payments, they may need to notify their loan servicing company that they want those to continue. So that's just a small note there in the fine print. Now, if federal student loan borrowers can no longer afford their monthly payment once they resume, they may be eligible for an income-driven repayment plan. Now, under those plans, which are based on income and family size, a monthly payment can actually be as low as $0 a month. So there, there are some things that people need to look into on this extension and when it expires, if you happen to have a student loan that you're still paying off. Mm. And what have I been saying? That Biden will keep kicking this can down the road. Yeah. Keep pausing the student loan payments until right around an election. <laughs> and then maybe forgive it all. If he's got the proper documentation from Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel saying that it is legal. You know what? If they're going to use scare tactics, we might as well do this. Kick the No, I don't I'm not going to say that. Kick the can down the road as long as you can, Biden. <laughs> yeah, and then you know, if August, September, October and then, you know, right before the election, you want to just forgive everyone in the world's student loan debt. That that would be very helpful for the midterms. Yeah, it would be indeed. Some uh, late breaking news. The documentarian whose film crew captured a key January 5th meeting between leaders of Oath Keepers and Proud Boys testified for hours before the January 6th committee today. His name is Quested, and he said he's been subpoenaed by the Justice Department and was initially treated like a co-conspirator of the Proud Boys, though he says he doesn't feel pressure from the DOJ like he did at the outset. Quested said the Justice Department's questions for him were narrowly focused on the actions of the Proud Boys during key time periods on January 5th and 6th, while the select committee had a much broader set of questions. He had praise for how the committee is conducting the investigation. They've done an incredible amount of hard work, he says, and have an exceptional grasp. And he added that this was a, a constitutional attack and it was very serious. So he's he's cooperating with the committee and the Department of Justice. All right, we will be right back after this quick break with former assistant U.S. attorney for D.C., Shanlyn Wu. Stick around. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and that stands for Allison Gill. And today, The Daily Beans is brought to you by AG, which stands for Athletic Greens. This is a company that specializes in convenient daily nutrition. I absolutely love it because eating right for me and getting essential vitamins is tough because I have a very busy schedule. And I intermittently fast and I'm paleo, so I have a lot of gaps in my nutrition. Plus, I'm perimenopausal, which also means I need some special vitamins and stuff. And that's the amazing life hack athletic greens that to the rescue. A single scoop of AG1 from Athletic Greens gives you comprehensive daily nutrition. AG1 contains multivitamins, multiminerals, a probiotic, green superfood blend, 75 vitamins and minerals, and whole food ingredients. And I find that taking AG1 in the morning keeps me feeling great and focused and productive throughout the day. And it's such an easy and convenient habit. 
as compared to the 20 different bottles of gummies and vitamins and probiotics and stuff that I used to have before. The bioavailable ingredients in AG1 make it an ideal alternative to all those multiple supplements, and it works well with all lifestyles, including keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, and gluten-free. It has fewer than one grams of sugar and contains no GMOs or chemicals or artificial anything. And it's delicious. It's so good. And my favorite thing about Athletic Greens is that they keep their research current. They believe in science. AG1 has made 53 improvements in the last decade as a result of research. For daily nutrition, I highly recommend AG1. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com dailybeans today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. You'll be glad you did. Everybody, welcome back. I'm honored today to be joined by former federal prosecutor. He was the AUSA in D.C. Please welcome Shanlin Wu. Shan, hello. Hi. Very nice to be here. <laughs> I'm so happy to get to talk to you. This is the first time you've been on the Daily Beans, and I've watched your commentary and followed your Twitter feed for a long time. So I'm, I'm very excited to have you here today. Thanks for being. Oh, thanks. No, you're, you're a great resource for folks. So I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Yes, I have a special weird superpower of translating court filings into words that people can understand. You do, yeah. That's a, that's a difficult power to have, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I wanted to talk to you today, I just kind of wanted to cover a couple of things going on at the Department of Justice, because we have a few, a few situations. We've got a special counsel appointed by Bill Barr named Durham, who is now over two years into his investigation into the oranges of the Russia investigation. Mm -hmm. And he's produced little, if anything, I think he got a guilty plea out of Kleinsmith for altering an email. And he's got this Sussman indictment, which is shaky at best. And then we have the investigation out, I think, of out of Connecticut into Hunter Biden. Mm -hmm. While simultaneously going on, we have investigations in the Southern District of New York and the Eastern District of New York into the Hunter Biden laptop scandal as part of the Ukraine sort of, uh, you know, three amigos of Rudy Giuliani and Sutherland <laughs> and Rick Perry trying to trying to get, you know, keep corruption in power by ousting Masha Yovanovitch and, and that that laptop could have been an intel op the FBI was investigating. What What is your response to folks who are calling for Biden or for Attorney General Garland to fire either of these guys? Because it seems to me keeping their hands off is, is the right decision. Let them dig their own holes. Yeah, I think you're right. I share a lot of the impatience that's been directed um, at H.E. Uh, Garland over what investigations, if any, are going on with uh, January 6th. But this sort of conflation of different cases, I really think, points out both the strengths as well as the potential weaknesses of Biden and Garland's approach. Um, I, I just did a short piece for NBC News, think an opinion piece where I was complimenting the hands-off approach towards the Hunter Biden investigation. Um, what seems like a million years ago, I think I had publicly said that Hunter Biden's case would be case number one for Merrick Garland on his first day. Obviously, there are a lot of other contenders for that spot now. But I think, you know, keeping, for example, the I think it's the Delaware U.S. attorney who's running the Hunter Biden um, tax investigation, keeping him in place, uh, keeping Durham in place, I think are real examples of a very strong showing that this president is not going to interfere with criminal investigations. And I also think it's a strong message and it's Merrick Garland's strength uh, as a leader of the department, that kind of hands-off approach that it, it's silence. He's just letting those cases run their course, being led by the people who started them and letting them go on. Uh, and I think you'll see the same thing with the Southern District investigations. This is not an attorney general, and it's certainly not a president who's going to be making statements or leaning on people privately, much less publicly. And, and that is the way that it should go. I mean, it, it would be naive to say that politics never is present at the Justice Department. But from my time there, I know that there is a lot of effort that goes into being careful not to let the politics interfere in, in a very obvious way. I mean, people do not raise that issue in meetings. Nobody talks about a high-profile case or a sensitive case to say, you know, this could have political ramifications. That, that would be seriously frowned upon to say anything like that. 
Yeah, agreed. And even, you know, we had the recent New York Times reporting that Biden had confided privately in some aides that he was frustrated with the pace and tenor of the, of the one six investigation and that it was important to hold the former president accountable. And then, of course, we got the news over the weekend that, uh, you know, New York Times has laid eyes on a subpoena mm-hmm. for people higher up in, you know, in the executive branch and the legislative branch and anyone who impeded or attempted to impede the electoral count and the false slates of electors, along with the organizers and leaders uh, and funders of, of the rallies, not just the 1-6 rally, but the two leading up to it. And so mm-hmm. I think that um, that bit of information, while some people, you know, were like, oh, Biden needs to keep out of it. Well, he, he did. He didn't say it publicly. And right. it also kind of shows right. he, how hands off and what a giant wall has been built mm-hmm. in between the yeah. White House and the Department of Justice. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, particularly in this day and age where there's so much both deliberate and unintentional leaking that comes out. I mean, presidents' principals are going to say things about their private frustrations. I mean, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during Clinton's meetings about Reno appointing so many independent counsels in his first administration. That must have been enormously frustrating. I understand that it was, but at the same time, you did not have him appearing on the airwaves saying what a lousy AG she was and how she wasn't loyal. I mean, there was the understanding that you don't say things like that. If someone does something wrong, you know, that that's a different story. And if you have to be called upon to defend a decision, but whatever your personal feelings may be, it's really not the role of the president to be commenting that way. Not if you want people to believe (laughs) in the integrity of the Justice Department. If you want people to believe that the Justice Department is just your personal fiefdom and you can do with what you want, then you can make pronouncements like that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so different from the Barr-Trump relationship. He was in the Oval Office all the time getting pressured and then public pressure and and Trump calling for investigations and then obvious interference in certain investigations by Bill Barr. I'm Flynn and Stone come to mind. And I think that that put the American public in a headspace where they're sort of expecting it more from Joe Biden and, and they're kind of uh, deflated and, and uh, angry about the, the lack of public pressure from the White House uh, to the Justice Department because everyone sort mm-hmm. of just got used to that sort of BS way of handling investigations and in, injecting the, you know, himself, Donald Trump, into the Department of Justice. And, and so that worries me a little. But I also understand the frustration with the pace of, of what's going on with January 6th. Apparently, it took a year to get into Enrique Tarrio's phone. I mean, there's just a lot of right. or, you know, seven months or, or whatever. What, what are your thoughts? Uh, now we're hearing the January 6th committee wavering a little bit on whether or not to make criminal referrals. At first, I thought a criminal referral from them would be a good idea because it would insulate the AG politically because it's a bipartisan commission. But now... It seems more likely that a criminal referral could actually give ammunition to people on the right, uh, saying that that uh, a referral would politically infect the Department of Justice's investigation. And and now I think they're saying now that they're seeing that subpoenas are happening at the top of the coup, maybe they don't need to make those criminal referrals anymore. Mm-hmm. And that that Garland wasn't waiting for that to begin an investigation. So what are your thoughts on on whether or not the one six committee should make criminal referrals? And I don't mean contempt or right. lying to Congress or anything like right. that. I simply mean, the, you know, the big ones at the end for like for the 18 U.S. Code 371 and 1512 C2, you know, conspiracy and uh, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think. You know, you put your finger on it very much when you said that the Trump bar era really made people both, of course, hate the kind of lack of integrity, the political inference that went on, but yet in some ways it normalized it. So now that many people feel the shoes on the other foot and there should be accountability, they're very frustrated with the pace of things. And, you know, I think that A.G. Garland is nothing if not a person who is meticulous thinking through the issues as befits a former appellate judge. And I think it's important to always remind ourselves of the difference between what a congressional investigation is trying to accomplish versus a potential criminal investigation. I think therein lies the answer to to your question, whether they should make referrals or not. 
they should do their job, which is the fact-finding, building the record. I absolutely think they need to have public hearings as quickly as possible as well. And they should make criminal referrals if that's what they see in the facts. They're not prosecutors, so one could say, well, you know, you can't make that decision with the right level of expertise. But Congress makes criminal referrals all the time. They ask the department to look at something. And it is not over-politicizing anything. I mean, that's what they're supposed to do. And the department, when I was there, looked at that seriously, but also sometimes you looked at it with a grain of salt. I mean, it's important when a fellow, you know, branch asks you to do something, but just because, you know, so-and-so senator says, you better look at this, hardly means that you're going to do that. And the grain of salt is, well, let's be aware, this is the political branch. It's the legislative branch asking us to do something. So just because they make a referral hardly means that DOJ is going to jump to attention because that happened. Does it give DOJ some political cover? Maybe, but I don't think that's a factor Congress should be thinking about. And it's certainly not a factor that Garland is thinking about. And either way, they'll get blasted. (laughs) If they make a referral, they're going to get blasted. If they don't make a referral, they'll get blasted from all angles. So I think they should really just finish up the very, very impressive, thorough job they've been doing. And where they see referrals that should be made, they should make them. And I don't think uh, if any thing, there's nothing to worry about that their referral is going to somehow improperly influence Garland one way or the other. I mean, clearly, you know, he is marching to his own beat in terms of what he thinks should be done. Um, I, I think there are some interesting, very unique issues about what he's facing, which makes me worry that doing it the normal way may not be the best thing for the country right now, but certainly whether they make referral or not it is not some ethical issue. It's not going to be a mistake one way or the other. They should just do what they're doing and, and make the referral if they see fit. Yeah, kind of like do their job, sort of how we were saying, you know, yep. yes, impeach, even though we know we aren't going to get the votes in the Senate to remove, we still need to do our duty. Oh, exactly. And, you know, I criticize prosecutors a lot these days on a wide range of things, including hate crimes, that prosecutors are oftentimes um, too risk averse. Uh, and, and they're they're so concerned about making sure that they can win a case. And while it's part of prosecutorial discretion to make sure you've got the evidence to prove it, there's a difference between meeting that standard and assessing the case versus saying, if I'm not 100% sure this is a slam dunk, I'm not bringing the case. That's part of my duty. No, that's more like your chicken. <laughs> you know, there, there are cases that you have to be willing to try and even to lose. Uh, and and that's, that's an important thing. Uh, to, to keep in mind on the doing, doing your job front. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about that, but the risk averse thing, because our new U.S. attorney uh, in D.C., which is, this is the office you worked out of. Right. Uh, he he surprised me, honestly, with seditious conspiracy charges. I was I was saying charge him with 1512 C2, charge him with obstructing an official proceeding. It carries the same sentence. It's way easier to prove. Don't bother with this seditious conspiracy. Mm-hmm. But he he surprised me. I thought that was a really gutsy call. And, you know, I'm I'm not shy. Fly on the wall, you talk about. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall when he went to Garland and said, I'm going to do this and, and see what Garland <laughs> had to say about it. Because Garland initially held that, held seditious conspiracy charges back in the Oath Keepers right. case when, when Sherwin, uh, who I could talk to you for a, about an hour about, <laughs> was trying to bring that charge. But he was, you know, that that case was tainted by his his public remarks and the fact that they were able to button it up, I thought was a justice miracle. But what do you think of did this seditious conspiracy charges surprise you? And what do you think of the job that he's doing there in D.C.? Because he's the one who would decide whether or not to bring charges against Donald Trump. I mean, of course, he would have to take Mm -hmm. it up to to Garland. But at that point, it would be his fight to argue with with the attorney general and his his decision. I support that gutsy decision, and not so much because it's just gutsy, meaning it may be going against the establishment or hasn't been used very much. It goes without saying earlier, which is I think the country really has been faced with a very unique 
danger and challenge during the, the Trump years. Uh, it's talked about a lot, but I think if you've been around in government, if you've been at the upper echelons at the OJ, you really have a deep appreciation for just how much that administration normalized the improprieties, the, the politicization, the weaponization of the department. And I think you have to look to use your full arsenal of potential criminal violations in this situation. Uh, it certainly would not be enough. You know, the, the, one of the worst fears I had was the whole January 6th investigation would be nothing but criminal trespass charges, which certainly is, <laughs> you know, and, and a bunch of assault charges, which it certainly is. But you have to look deeper than that because that was really the tip of the iceberg in terms of what was happening to the governance of, of the country. And the charge, like seditious conspiracy, you know, obviously very rarely used. And when you don't use a law, it really falls into disrepair. It's like erasing it from the books. You've got to use it. There's going to be a lot of rust to break off it in terms of you know what are the arguments, what kind of evidence goes to it. The defense will find lots of ways to attack it. But it, it's the right charge to meet this set of circumstances, which is really, in our lifetimes, a very uniquely dangerous set of circumstances. So I really support using that. Yeah, I agree. If you don't use it, you you lose it. And yep. uh, his his uh, decision to, to bring those seditious conspiracy charges puts my mind at ease a little bit about decisions he might make further up mm -hmm. the ladder, that he's willing to go out on that limb, charge something that rarely gets charged, shows, you know, he's willing to follow the law and the facts, which is, you know, what you're talking about. And I, yeah, I should revise my statement about it being gutsy as to it just being the right call. But there are yeah. still a lot of prosecutors, I think, that would definitely shy away from from a charge like that. So it, it does it does give me a, a little bit of a hope about um, what sort of future indictments come might might come out. Oh, of yeah. Yeah. I mean, that speaking office. of prosecutors that shy away, I, I think, you know, Alvin Bragg comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's my little dig at the Manhattan DA. <laughs> I'm so pissed at that guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they had Pomerantz and Dunn on that for two years, right. steeped in it, up to their eyeballs in it. And they're like, dude, we've got enough. Vance said we had enough. We just need to bring on these last key witnesses. And he and he, you know, he he comes out and says, we, we I it was my call and I need more evidence. But, y you know, you don't you don't stop grand jury testimony if it's exactly. more evidence you want i don't know what the hell he's thinking i, yeah. I need more information on that I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty upset but i thank you for for speaking with me today i really appreciate that and uh oh, sure. i hope we get a chance to talk again soon as as this as this case progresses because you know it is one giant huge investigation biggest one in history a thousand defendants i mean it's it's enormous the task that that's going that you know the dc U.S. Attorney's Office is facing, and I know you've got a lot of experience there. So I appreciate your time today. Oh, you're welcome. And anytime and uh, happy to chat with you. Awesome. Everybody follow Shanlin Wu, W-U, on Twitter. You need to. It's a very, very important follow. And uh, we will speak soon, my friend. Have a good one. You too. All right. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everybody. It's AG for The Daily Beans. And today's episode, I'm so excited, is brought to you by our new sponsor, Thuma. I realized recently that my bedroom deserved a fresh makeover. And now is the perfect time to elevate the most important room in your home with Thuma. Thuma adheres to the less is more design philosophy. It's very, it really fits with my mid-mod, simple lines, simple clean lines. And that is what I was thinking when I was designing my bedroom. And that's what you should think when you design bedroom interiors. Thuma's clean lines, subtle curves, and lifestyle enhancing details exemplify the true elegance of simplicity. My favorite new piece, the bed by Thuma, is handcrafted with eco-friendly, high-quality, upcycled wood, just so you know. You will find it gorgeous, unique, and, and there's beautiful variations in the grain. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. The minimalist design and Japanese joinery help elevate any room. It's breathable, it's supportive of your mattress, and it's designed to minimize noise and create space. The bed by Thuma has a lifetime warranty. It ships right to your door in three convenient boxes. It's easy to assemble without tools in about five minutes. Five minutes. Thuma offers other bedroom essentials too, including the nightstand and the side table and the tray, which are perfect complements to the bed. Thuma works with one tree planted to plant one tree for every bed and nightstand sold. 
And all of their essentials are Green Guard Gold Certified, which is a really hard certificate to get. Create that feeling of checking into your favorite boutique hotel suite, but at home with the bed by Thuma. And now go to thuma.co slash beans and use code beans to receive $25 credit towards your purchase of the bed plus free shipping in the continental U.S. That's thuma, T-H-U-M-A dot C-O slash beans and enter code beans at checkout for a $25 credit. Again, thuma.co slash beans and enter code beans. You'll be so glad you did. This bed is incredible. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news. It's on the way. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, idioms, idiots of the sentence, misheard song lyrics, whoobies, shared swears, find the cat, happy places, what the mutt, limericks, whatever you want, shit kids say, Halloween photos, Easter bunny photos, whatever you got, you can send it in to us at dailybeanspod.com. And click on contact. And you know what would really help the podcast out? If everyone listening right now on Apple Podcasts would just give us a, a five-star review. We really appreciate it. Helps us grow bigger than right-wing shows that clog up the podcast charts. So help take the fastest off the charts and give us a little review if you get a chance. All right, Dana, first up from Jane, pronouns she and her. My silly superpower is loading the dishwasher correctly. <laughs> <laughs> We're new patrons and we'll submit some good stuff soon. Thank you, Jane. It's very important to put the plates on the bottom in size order and the glasses upside down on the top. And I wonder if you put your silverware in like with the tines down or tines up on the forks and spoons. Those are all good well, questions. I don't, don't understand why people uh, load a dishwasher with the knives facing up. I don't understand it. That seems very dangerous. Yeah, it does. Anyway, I'll jump on this next one, too, since that was a pretty short one. But thank you, Jane. And she says we're new patrons and we submit some good stuff soon. Thank you. Anonymous, pronouns they and them. Hello, lovely Laguminati. Thank you for bringing me laughter and great reporting for the last five years. God, it's been five years. Okay. Also, thank you to the benefactor who donated my ad-free subscription when I couldn't swing it during COVID so I could get straight to the news. I also have a little confession to share. I just reported my gender as non-binary for the first time and I'm coming out to you. Congratulations, Anonymous. I'm not ready to tell my Me Too story yet. I don't feel safe to, mm. in part, because until the rapist in chief is held accountable, I don't believe mine will be either. Until justice comes for my abuser, I feel my gender is moot. Ooh, I'm so happy justice is picking up some steam and seeing hope on the horizon. Me too. Me too, Anonymous. Lastly, I do have a bit of good news. Your example of resilient, intelligent, and powerful women inspired me to go back to school. Nice. I'm in my first year of graduate school and ready to use my artistic skills to help fight for justice in the built environment. Awesome. For pet tax, I'm including a photo of Peter Butt, my son's sweet elderly rescue cat, <laughs> who we got to visit over spring break. It was a happy reunion as she, yes, Peter Butt is a girl, <laughs> was one of the 10 plus cats oh. we had to leave behind with a roommate when we moved for grad school last year. Though petite and sickly from being a starving stray, she's doing great and rules the house now. Thanks for everything you do in deepest gratitude. What a great submission. That's wonderful. I am also sending you love and strength during this time. And I, I do hope that um, whoever hurt you is eventually brought to justice. Thank you for your vulnerability, even with your uh, anonymous submission, because we hear you and we see you. Yes. All right. This next one is also from Anonymous. Pronoun she and her. I was touched by the submission of the elderly couple who inadvertently hurt a grown child by not using their correct pronouns. They're probably right that only time and therapy can fix this. Now, many years ago, we inadvertently offended a daughter-in-law who thought we were paying more attention to than the other grandchildren who lived closer to us. I spent tearful months trying to convince them that we were doing the best we could. We loved all of them, etc., but to no avail. They kept their children away from us for 10 years. Oh, my God. But as we attended multiple high school and college graduations, relationships began to soften. I'm so happy to announce that this weekend, this weekend, our son and daughter-in-law will be visiting us for the first time in 20 years. Mm -hmm. Counseling on my part and time and perhaps maturity on theirs have done their job. And as we approach our 80s, we now have a loving relationship. We send heartfelt hope that this family will reconcile and that it won't take so long. Thank you all for your amazing empathy that is apparent every day as you share submissions from your listeners. Mm. Anonymous, thank you. And oh my God, enjoy the visit. There's going to be tears, I know. Tears, tears. Yeah, it's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that, really. 
Uh, next up from Ada, pronouns she and her. Hi, Beans Queens. This is a response to the old parents who misgendered their adult kid. First, I'm a trans woman and I have faced this issue. I have general advice and the magical solution that resolved my own family from misgendering me. My magical solution. Last time I went home, I noticed photos of me pre-transition were everywhere. Then it clicked. Those photos were working against my efforts. So I took them all down and gave my parents a selection of photos so they can see me. Wonderful. I asked them to put them up and that created moments of intention to literally make space for me. And it worked. After years of getting dead named and misgendered, this completely resolved my problem. Hope this helps. P.S. Thanks, DG, for the lesbian perspective on this. And throughout the podcast, your visibility means a lot to me. Thank you so much. And for those listening, if they don't know what uh, dead named means, it's when you call a trans person by the name that they were born with instead of the name that they now present with and identify with. So be very careful if you know someone in transition to try and honor their, their name as they are now instead of how you used to know them. So I just wanted people to know what that term was if it was unfamiliar as you're listening. Now, Anna, this is from the next uh, submission. Anna pronounced she and her. Hello, AGDG, Amy, and the rest. Just sending in a whoopee pick. It's not necessarily something I've carried around since I was a child, but it's been just as important in my life. This cat whoopee was made for me by my Nona when I was a young child out of the flower girl dress from my aunt and uncle's wedding in the early 90s. I've moved several times since, and this has always stayed with me. My Nona passed away about eight years ago, and this has remained a beautiful reminder of her. I've also attached is my pod pet tax, Pablo, the South Jersey wee snorting non-woofing woofer. Thanks for all you do. And look at that underbite. (sighs) First of all, what a cool idea to make make a woobie, make a stuffed animal, make a lovey out of bridesmaids dresses. Totally. A flower girl. I had a flower girl. Was it flower girl? Flower girl dress. Yeah. I I remember when my uncle Frank got married, I was six or something. And we had these, my Grammy uh, made me these, made us these beautiful flower girl dresses. And I wish I had a, I wish I had a woobie made out of it. Oh, (laughs) Dana. I know. What a beautiful animal. Look at that guy. Hello. (laughs) Thank you for that submission. Next up is from Stacy. Pronouns he and him. Hello, Leguminati. My favorite morning ritual after coffee is listening to the Daily Beans. I have a shit kid say from when I edited my wife's kindergartner's art project video. She had them use paper to create jellyfish with many ribbons of paper folded accordion style stuck on. Makes sense, right? When she asked the boy if she knew what those were called, he said without missing a beat, testicles. (laughs) Oh, there you have. Yep. That was one for the outtake reel. For good measure, I'm sending another pic of that Zuni Mountain, New Mexico reverse tuxedo kitty, Mosita, climbing an alligator bark juniper to mug for the camera. I mean, this picture is gorgeous. (laughs) And that cat is stunning. That is such an interesting coloration. It really is. I love this. Reverse tuxedo. My sister also called the octopus tentacles. Uh, testicles quite loudly in my mother's Christmas party or work Christmas party when we were younger. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yelled it out. (laughs) That's so great. That's so great. It makes you wonder, like, because you know how, you know, your phone spells words based on the words that you use most often. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder if people confuse testicles with tentacles, if they hear the word testicles more often than they hear the word tentacles. It has to be, right? I mean, you would think, but also my phone autocorrects to duck all the time, and I've never used duck as far as I can look back in a (laughs) sentence. I say fuck a lot, though. (laughs) You know what happened to me the other day is I was trying to tell somebody about ducks, like actual ducks at the park, and it kept autocorrecting it to fuck. That's hilarious. Your phone's like, like, there's no way she can mean ducks. I was like, how do you always (laughs) change fucking to ducking? But when I type ducks, you change it to fucks. What? That was the best Dr. Seuss I've ever heard. (laughs) How do you change ducking to fucking? And what the fuck? It's not a duck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. Ah, news was swearing. Oh, Ducks yeah. with fucks. Thank you. Thank you so much for these submissions. If you have anything you want to send in, please go ahead and do that at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Dana, do you have any final thoughts? My final thoughts are that every time I read a good news story, I realize how vastly 
uh, diverse our listenership is. And it's just, it warms my heart and the vulnerability of our listeners to share their stories with the world and educate people. It's really what it's about because we get to have conversations on this podcast that people probably want to ask questions about all the time and they can do it from the safety of their walk or their living room or just their earbuds and get educated. I think it's awesome. So I just thank everyone for continuing to write in and share your stories with us because it's making us a better community every time we do. Yeah. And the stuff hits me in the feels too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was actually, I was actually, I don't know, no one can see me. You can, but I was tearing up when you were talking about dead naming people. Yeah. It's a very painful experience <sighs> for a trans person. That just, um, that's hard. You know, that's just a, that's tough. Yeah. And so, you know, when, when those kinds of feelings are involved, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, I, I mean, emotions are just, that's what they are, you know? Yeah. Ian Harvey, a dear friend of ours. I know you know mm. Ian. Uh, he's an incredible comedian. If you'd like to be familiar with Ian, you can look him up. He's one of the most handsome trans men I've ever seen. Mm. Big crush, big crush on him. But he's very funny because he looks at it a little bit differently. Um, he jokes about his mom still sometimes um, dead naming him in public, but he he takes a comedy stance and he says, sometimes we're out at the store and Ian's got like full beard, like full beard, very masculine. And his mom's going, Janet, Janet. And then Ian comes running up to the counter. Yeah, mom. And everyone's looking at his mother like she's crazy. I remember when we were working out comedy bits at the main comedy festival. Yep. And Ian was thinking of at at some point when he had a show coming up at Largo at the Coronet in Los Angeles is talking about taking out his dick and setting it on the stool yep. to discuss it and the jokes that he has about it going through airport security. Yeah, he named it Goong Goong from the sound of um, Law and Goong Order. Goong. <laughs> Ian's fantastic. If you get a chance to Google Ian, definitely do it. He's a, a he's a fine man and a great comedian. He's so funny. And uh, yeah, his last name is spelled Harvey, A-J-R-V-I-E. Yes. Uh, he's very cool. We, uh, we've done a lot of shows for Trevor Project with, with Ian down here with Moe's Universe. He's just truly an incredible man, yep. honestly. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Excellent final thoughts. My final thought is that I will be back tomorrow and so will Dana and we're going to have more news and maybe that fucking Matt Gates indictment will happen. Oh God, I hope so. <laughs> Come on, throw me a bone, Merrick. Uh, all right. Bone Merrick. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> Until tomorrow, <laughs> please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health and vote blue over Q. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>